The Curmudgeon Rock Report. Curmudgeon rhymes with bludgeon. Rock gods do it right. So do rock nerds. We're here for The Rock. 1965, 2021, doesn't matter. Crude, rude, yet somehow sophisticated. Welcome. Enjoy the show. Welcome back, everyone, to uh, the newest edition of the Curmudgeon Rock Report. Uh, I'm here with Arturo Andrade, uh, chiming in all the way from Guangzhou, uh, South Korea. Uh, say hello, Arturo. Hello, Arturo. Ah, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it's like the old animal house, you know, I state my name or state your name. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, so anyway, how's your week been, dude? Good, good. I'm, I'm, I'm fine. Everything's okay. Um, here in South Korea, like we, you know, the city I live in, we've had a bit of an uptick, uh, more than a bit of actually a bit of a, we had an uptick in virus cases, but I'm doing well. Um, I haven't been going out. I don't go out much anyway to begin with. So yeah, yeah. Not yeah, I, me. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, that's one of the things that I guess makes us curmudgeons naturally is that uh, uh, being in a, a bar room uh, full of drunks, uh, especially now, isn't isn't that appealing. I mean, heck, it wasn't that appealing to me when I was 21. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, I like shows. I mean, this is probably why I bombed as the uh, music editor of Phoenix New Times. Hello, everybody in Phoenix and uh, Serene Dominic, Jimmy McGahern, uh, Jonathan Bond and all the L of those folks, if you're listening. But I just wanted to be left alone out there. I wanted to be the guy in the, in the, in the jacket in the back just taking notes. And then everybody just wanted to buy me drinks and stuff. And I'm like, get, get away from me. Yeah. Let you know, so. me listen to the band and write about them and leave me alone. Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. And so now we have this podcast, which makes being stuck inside a heck of a lot more fun. Now, doesn't it? Right. Uh, you know, and, and, and this, I'm looking forward to this episode because we will not be talking about ourselves this time. We, we, no, we will not be talking about ourselves. This is, this is just a, a little bit of opening banter and, you know, hey, people like us and we want you to like us too. So uh, go to our Twitter feed at @curmudgeonpod and uh, go to our Patreon site, uh, which I'm excited about this. Uh, I know this is a, a bit shameless on the top, but uh, Patreon is a way to support a community of artists. And uh, we have uh, officially set up a Patreon page. Uh, for five dollars, you're not only uh, supporting us generally, but you get sweeteners uh, such as downloadable show notes, and our, our show notes rock. So you'll definitely want to download those. Okay, now that the shameless plug is out of the way. We have to talk about our something that we're going to do every episode: uh, contemporary album recommendations. Yeah, you know, absolutely. We're, yeah, we're in our forties, but at, at least I continue to. You know, I subscribe to Mojo. So, so I, I listen, I'm always looking out for, and I'm downloading, and I'm always listening to new music. So I think it's a good idea for us to always, every episode, put out contemporary album recommendations, meaning albums that have come out within the past year or last year or this year, something yep. fairly recent and contemporary. Totally down for, the, for, uh, for that, and I, I'll make a confession uh, so I saw a study recently that said that uh, most people kind of start losing a connection to popular culture when they're 32. I, I, I wouldn't say that that happened to me across the board, 
But at, at 32 is when I kind of got bored by the rock and roll that was happening then. It was it was this notion that if you live next door to a rock critic in either Brooklyn or Olympia, Washington, then, then your band could become successful. And so it started to get yeah, distasteful. I, I see that as more being cynical about the music journalism business than anything. Well, yes. Uh, yeah, that, that, that's true. I had a hangover. And just in the last five years or so, I think I've uh, picked it back up and uh, enough to where I can hang with the king here. Uh, say, <laughs> say hello again, king. Oh, hello, king. Well, hello, uh, king. Uh, so, a- anyway, so I think I'm in this segment is that basically each of us uh, will take turns giving one uh contemporary recent album recommendation they mainly rock we, we want to stick to rock but you can go into other genres we can go into the other genres if we wish they don't all have to be underground obscure curiosos they could be relatively mainstream or well-known artists and bands as well uh frankly usually i'm gonna go with more of the the underground stuff but every now and then we'll surprise you uh, uh yep. with with some uh, well-known people. I came really close to talking about Taylor Swift, but uh, I held yeah. back. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he just couldn't He just couldn't bring himself to do it. Just couldn't bring himself to do it. Although, to be fair, uh, nobody had a better year uh, in the music industry than Taylor Swift. In Dude, she, she completely revitalized, not revitalized her career. Her career has always been you know, stellar, but like she's completely revitalized her reputation among serious music fans. She's well, now... Yeah. She's now being taken seriously because she's really changed. She's evolved. She's different than she's not. She, the music that she's doing now is not what she used to do. Right. Uh, which, you know, is a way of saying that she's always been really talented, but somehow we became part of her audience as she got into her thirties. So well, yeah, she's, she's, in her 30s yeah. now. she's older, of course. And I mean, who, yeah. who knew that like she, she now become the new Joni Mitchell. Yeah. Go figure, go figure. So, on that note, Arturo, what do you got for your uh, your contemporary album to give a shout out to? Uh, it's by a, a Los Angeles band um, called Death Valley Girls. Now, before I go into them, I want to say that the L.A. scene in the recent years has been very lively, especially particularly with female centered rock groups. Uh, you have bands. Well, the, my favorite of that whole group is Bleach. Um, they're, they're led by, uh, by, by, by two sisters. Um, but there's another band called LA girls that basically sound like, you know, the, a female version of the Jesus and Mary chain. Um, but the one I'm talking about now, and there's another band called automatic, which kind of takes, you know, that, that, um, post-punk, you know, early eighties, dark synth pop, but they update it for the 21st century and they do it with really catchy songs and really engaging hooks. Uh, so that, that that's a shout out to that whole scene in LA that's going on now. But the band I'm going to recommend now is a band called Death Valley Girls. And they've been around for a few years, but their last album is, I think, stupendous. It, it, it was one of my top five albums of last year. Um, it's called Under the Spell of Joy. And the way I would describe it, it's basically two albums in one. The first half of the album is this very trancey, hypnotic, heavy psych rock. And the second half is this really, really punchy, catchy, kind of rockin' garage punk. It's like an album of halves. And they kind of merge them together. And put them both together, 
it, 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 you hear a lot of, in my opinion, you hear a lot of the Brian Jonestown massacre and Anton Newcomb's specter hovers over this album a lot. It just, and it just sounds like the Brian Jonestown massacre with very, very happy, much more optimistic lyrics. <laughs> it's, it's like Anton Newcomb in a very good chipper mood. And that's yeah, how I, which, which I love, you know, the, the name of the band is Death Valley Girls, but their lyrics are very uplifting. And I would say, dare, dare I say, almost hippie in their optimism. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, de- definitely an optimistic uh, band. What I like is this mixture of, to go off what you were talking about, and then I'll let you get back to it, yeah. uh, is this mix of this sort of garage punk, you know, this, this, these songs, especially in the first half where there's this meld of uh, garage sort of uh, uh, Hammond uh, uh, organ with this sort of uh, early 60s, late 50s uh, girl group. Uh, harmony yeah, there's a bit of, of that as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you know, to Arturo's point too, that there's also like a hypnotic uh, nature to things that yeah is re- reminiscent of uh, Brian Jonestown Massacre and some of those bands from uh, you know the 07 to 10. You know, that's sort of in that era. That well, the 90s Jonestown dates back to the 90s. Oh, I know, I know, but but you know, they they kind of peaked uh, there uh, during that period. But there were a lot of that. There's sort of uh, trance rock uh, records or bands that were going on. And so uh, this harkens back to it. Uh, just for a laugh, Arturo, I wanted to share, I did a little bit of my own research, uh, you know, because I, I was curious about this group. And uh, I checked out a Pitchfork uh, review of that record. Yeah. And, and coincidentally, uh, at, for serious purposes and for serious absorption, uh, using Pitchfork as your reference is a really terrible idea. <laughs> I'm not a Pitchfork fan. <laughs> yeah, and, and sorry to any paid Pitchfork writers or uh, enthusiastic Pitchfork readers out there, but you really shouldn't start there. And uh, uh, so from their review uh, comes, uh, to date, my favorite terrible sentence that I've come across in 2021. <laughs> uh, and it, this says, under the spell of joy is not a soundtrack for eating cheeseburgers. It's music for barfing up the poison in your soul. <laughs> well, that's a compliment, at least. Yeah, I mean, it's meant as a compliment, but what, what in, what in the world uh, is that? Uh, especially because the last thing that uh, this album makes me think of is barfing up poison. <laughs> and and to tell you the truth, it it actually co- goes down more like a cheeseburger. So yeah. I, I mean, it's it's a wonderfully terrible sentence that I thought was worth sharing. But anyway, uh, Arturo, I will let you wrap up your thoughts. And then we will go on to uh, my recommendation. Well, not much to wrap up. I pretty much described the album. I highly recommend it. Like I said, it's one of my one of my top five albums of last year. Uh, and um, yeah, I'm looking forward to see what they do next. I mean, that, that whole LA scene is really fascinating because they're they're all very all these all these bands, and and, and they're all female centered or female fronted, and they're all very different. So it's interesting to see what the, these bands come up with next. And if they come up with anything next, you know, we're living in virus time. So who knows? And these, these bands aren't making money anymore. So we'll see. We'll yeah. see what happens. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And that'll, that'll be a subject that we'll be covering here. I mean, that's one of the more fascinating elements of rock and roll right now is what's going to come out on the other side of the pandemic here. Uh, could be good, could be bad, uh, or there could be nothing, which is the scariest uh, proposition. So uh, moving on. So uh, my uh, recommendation so this has been uh, the last couple of years. What we've seen is, 
I wouldn't necessarily call it the golden age for female rappers. I mean, that was probably the late nineties when, you know, you had a lot of folks. Um, and then you did have Nicki Minaj a, a decade ago who had, it still has my favorite verse on uh, Kanye's uh, dark fantasy record yeah. um, and the whole thing. But right now what you're seeing is a golden age of, of filthy body, uh, nasty female rappers. And, yeah. And so and what you're getting they're, is they're taking back the sexism and this. <laughs> yeah. And, and so now you're getting, yeah, exactly. You're getting this, uh, who's the dirty South of chicks, you know, who's the too short of chicks and it's, and it's, or who's the chief keef of chicks. And so you're getting this, uh, this competition, which, you know, fascinates me. And there, and again, I'm a fan of Megan B. Stallion who, you know, I'm based here outside of Houston and she's been a little bit of a local legend. Uh, I caught on to her in 2018 when she was still doing mixtapes. Um, and, uh, and then you've got, you know, obviously Cardi B, uh, and those two, uh, uh, you know, we, we will refrain from saying the actual title for all of you ladies out there, but, uh, but needless to say, WAP, uh, it shouldn't be as good as it is, given the... It was the best hip-hop single of last year. What a great oh, song. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, ab- absolutely. Just given it its, its inherent dirtiness, it shouldn't be that good. Uh, and so that that's a good jump-off point to describe uh, the, uh, the, the group I'm going to discuss today, uh, City Girls. Uh, City Miami. Girls... They are from Miami. Arturo is a, is a, is a Cubano uh, first-generation who spent most of his youth in Miami. So this is near and dear to his heart. Uh, the city girls are these first two guys. Ameri- I'm not first generation Cubano. I'm first generation American. I got that wrong. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, so what I was saying, so there's these two gals uh, from Miami uh, and they're really rough and tumble. And, you know, they've got their bona fides. Uh, one of them spent uh, about a year and a half uh, in prison, uh, credit, credit card fraud, <laughs> credit card fraud. Yeah. And, and she actually became a, uh, and this was JT. She became a, a big, uh, rallying, uh, cause for a lot of folks, you know, like, uh, uh, Drake, uh, who's an enthusiast and backer of theirs was wearing free JT t-shirts and all of this. Uh, and then you've got uh, young Miami, uh, and, uh, she's, the, she's actually the lead rapper and probably the more, the more talented of the two. Oh, absolutely. And, and so what you have is you've got these two, they're very good. Uh, they're very original and very, very, very filthy. Um, and and so what you have here is, and their latest album uh, is really, really strong. City on Lock. Uh, this came out uh, last year, and it's you know I've never been a huge fan of trap music, mm-hmm. uh, only because really the only one that I thought did it worth the crap up until now was Kanye West, uh, on Yeezus. But, you know, obviously trap music is a very Chicago, very sort of, uh, influenced by house music. Uh, and obviously it's a, you know, basically it's, it's in some ways you can call it a ghetto folk music. I just never thought it was done well until now. Uh, let's just say that this, these girls are like if chief Keith and his crew had any talent and weren't actually psychotic. And so what you have here is you've got, um, in some ways, you've got an ode to Tricky because Young Miami's flow is very similar to, mm-hmm. to Tricky. And, and I love Tricky back in the day. Uh, and uh, they, they, they come up with these great choruses. 
uh, one of which is broke N. Uh, we're not going to say the word, but it's uh, but it, 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 it it's it's funny and it's um, and they they're they're really uh, really good. Um, lots of lots of clever sort of uh, uh, I guess you would call it like kind of ghetto fabulous feminism. They're very, they're very creative and expansionist in in how they uh in ways they come up with uh how how things can go inside their vagina. Yes, and uh, they also and, and according to them, their vaginas can do cartwheels. Uh, that, yeah, that's probably my favorite album on that. And so, so what it is is it's kind of this this female. Uh, and not only can they do cartwheels, it can speak many. Uh, their vaginas can speak many languages. Yes, as, they can. As in the yeah. pussy talk, which is one of my favorite songs on the album. Yes, yeah, they. Uh, and just remember, oh, th- th- those broke ends—they don't deserve no pussy. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah. which is uh, strangely enough, I know it sounds crude, but it is a wonderfully catchy hook. Yeah. Um, and uh, my favorite thing about this record is one really solid minimalist trap beats. Two, there's an inherent ode to the two shorts of you know thirty and thirty-five years ago. Uh, there's real connection to dirty South, uh, the, the, what all those nerdy guys were doing in 04 and 05. And they all were nerds too, you know, little John, and y- y- you know, uh, yin yang twins and all these kids guys. So there's, there's a lot of that going on, but, but really what it is, is it's this sort of celebratory emasculation of, you know, all these gangsta types from, from the dirty South. And it's, it's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I, I'm, I'm a fan. And uh, I think that uh, I can see these gals, so long as they stay out of prison uh, (laughs) and and, and can stay alive and (laughs) and can navigate all that kind of stuff, uh, I think they're going to be right there. I mean, obviously, I think Megan Thee Stallion is probably going to be the leader of that pack. uh, I'm suspecting in about two years, she'll be one of the biggest pop stars or one of the biggest uh, mainstream stars in in music. But uh, these gals are going to come right behind uh, them. So again, golden era for, for filthy mouthed uh, uh, women that don't give a crap. So city unlocked by the city girls, check it out. I recommend it too. Yeah. All right. So now let's move on to today's episode and what we're talking about. And this is something we've been planning for a long time. Something that I've had gestating uh, in my, in my brain and something that I've always wanted to make an entire podcast about. It's something that, uh, we call the bovine trilogy. Bovine, of course, meaning cows. And what we're talking Ooh. about, <laughs> and basically, we're, we're alluding to the idiom of uh, of sacred cows. Sacred cows meaning something or someone that is above criticism or or, or, or above um, uh, any kind of dispute. And you know, and what we're talking and what we're doing here in today's episode. This particular episode is about sacred cows, but we're doing three episodes in a row in regard to cows, and we're calling it the bovine trilogy because this first episode is about killing sacred cows. And when we mean killing sacred cows, it means bands or artists who are um, either either critically adored or commercially adored or both. And we think they don't deserve it. <laughs> and we think they're overrated. And we're going to give our reasons why. Chris will have his five. I'll have my five. The second episode, part of the trilogy next week, will be put the old cows out to pasture. These are older artists or older bands who've been around for a long time. 
um, and really need to stop making music because they just fucking suck now, <laughs> basically. And and bands and artists that we think, and most of these are legendary great artists and bands that we all love, and we love their early stuff. We love their stuff when they did, in their, when they were in their twenties and thirties and forties. But now they just need to stop because they're just embarrassing themselves. And then the third episode is old cows still making good milk. And these are bands and artists, older again, but they're kind of bucking the trend. They're actually going against the tide and they're still making good music that we can all enjoy. And of course, in each of these episodes, Chris will come up with his cows that, um, and then I'll come up with his five cows and I'll come up with my five cows as well. And we'll give oh, our and then give each other feedback. Oh, absolutely! It's gonna it's gonna be a slaughterhouse up in here. You know, we're we're gonna be killing a lot of cows, and we're gonna be we're gonna be sacrificing a lot. It's it's gonna kind of read like the Old Testament, you know, like little Leviticus. <laughs> yeah, we're we, we, we're gonna be draining lots of bulls and lots of cows, and uh, we'll be at the altar. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, just as a as a hint for that third uh, group about uh, cows making good milk, here's a hint: that list does not include Bob Dylan <laughs> at all. Uh, yeah. Oh, I got a lot to say about I got a lot to say about Dylan in episode in the next episode of this uh, of this trilogy. Let, let's just put it this way: that murder is so foul. We're already talking about it two weeks in advance. <laughs> so, so just to, just to expand on on what Arturo was saying for for this episode, and we'll set up the concept and start to focusing on the sacred cows. So, as I'm want to to do, uh, I took a look at Merriam Webster's dictionary, and and they actually have an entry for sacred cow. And it specifically reads one that is often unreasonably immune from criticism or opposition. Right. And I think that that term unreasonably immune is, is certainly what inspired my list. Um, and I can let you talk about this uh, and your thoughts in a second uh, here uh, uh, as well, uh, Arturo. But here's my thoughts to begin with. I don't think any of the artists that we're going to be speaking about, certainly on my list, are, are bad or that they suck or that they don't deserve success. Here's the thing, though. I just don't get the fawning and the undying reverence. The, icon the iconography regarding certain bands and artists. Yeah, I'm the same way. Yeah, I just yeah, yeah no, absolutely. Yeah, why do we worship so much? Yeah, I mean, it, it really feeds into my general feeling that most popular music iconography is just annoying. Um, look, that this is what happens when the iconic when the iconography is greater than the output or the proper level of respect. Uh, that that can't be a good thing. I mean, it's just a testament to the fact that you can probably have two great songs and uh, and then you can just sort of coast on that. Now, granted, there are some quote unquote icons that actually deserve the status. You know, little Richard, little Richard. Yeah, I mean, basically. Uh, made millions of dollars on the backs of two songs uh, and, uh, you know, basically wrote that out for 55 years. But uh, with those two songs and basically essentially created uh, a good portion of the rock and roll that we know uh, today. I mean, I guess you could call T uh, Tupac Sh Shakur an icon. Uh, I was never personally a fan of his music. There are other hip hop artists who I rank higher than him on the iconography scale. Like oh, I, put, I know, I put but, enemy way ahead of him. Uh, not as an icon, as 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 a group, yes. Uh, as uh, a band that changed the uh, the idiom, uh, absolutely. But the thing with Tupac is, he wrote and he invented about seventy five percent of the cliches 
that are still driving hip hop today. Or at um, least mainstream hip hop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Mainstream hip hop, you know, the language of it, you know, you know, about everything being uh, feel me and uh, ride or die. And just think, think of any sort of uh, uh, side chick and all this stuff. Think of all these, these terminologies that, you know, from hip hop, Tupac probably wrote. Okay. So I'm going on a tangent there. Point being is, is that there's a lot of this iconography and a, a lot of these folks that are held up on platforms that I, I don't understand it. I never bought into it in the first place in my case. And, you know, here we are now. I mean, most of these artists were active 30 to 40 years ago. And, you know, most people going down the street, uh, you know, they'll, they'll still have this reverence. Uh, one of the groups uh, on my list as a preview, just got uh, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Several of them, actually. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at least on my list. I mean, I guess may, maybe you can make an argument that these artists deserve it, but it's like, you know, whatever. Um, I mean, I was personally more excited when Kiss got in because at least, you know, you could put the fame in the Hall of Fame part. But anyway, <laughs> I digress. Yeah. Uh, any, any thoughts on what I just said there, Arturo? No, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I, we, we, our, our reasons are similar. You know, basically it comes down to like, these motherfuckers are overrated. That's <laughs> what it comes down to. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> It's time to dive into our list and to answer the question, who are the sacredest of cows that we would love to just chop into pieces at the altar? And so to get started and to not waste too much time, let's start this first part of the bovine trilogy and kill some sacred cows. Uh, take it away, Mr. Arturo Andrade. Okay. Well, my five cows, I'm going to start with number five. I'm going to make it a countdown, okay? And then I'll give my reasons, and then you chip in. My number five is Radiohead post-amnesiac. Now, let me start off by saying that I love Radiohead. I'm a big fan. They had a streak of albums um, from The Benz, OK Computer, Kid A, Amnesiac. Really, Kid A Amnesiac are the same because they were recorded during the same sessions. It should have been a double album. But anyway, those four albums are transcendent. Um, they are they were the best band of their era. Um, they were the band of the second half of the 90s and probably the first half of the noughties. Um, they were important. They were groundbreaking. They were innovative. They were influential. And that is the bedrock. Those albums and I guess the Creep single from Pablo Honey, are the bedrock of their legacy and why they, why they got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which they deserve to be in. 
So I'm a huge fan. However, post after Amnesiac, they've had a string of albums that have been so critically revered to the point where it's almost like you are people aren't allowed to criticize Radiohead. You can't dare you criticize. How dare you say anything bad about Radiohead? They're the greatest band ever. They're the most progressive uh, uh, millennial band ever. It's, it's, it's almost like, and, and I've had these discussions and and, uh, and not quite arguments, but debates with other you know music geek friends of mine who just are just startled and, and that, that I would actually criticize anything Radiohead has ever done. Like, are you kidding me? Come on! Like, all listen, all bands. All bands, all bands have a shelf life. Nobody is great forever. And this applies to Radiohead, whether you like it or not. And they, they, they had their moment of brilliance, like all the great classic rock and roll bands of the past from the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and blah, blah, blah. But in my opinion, they've fallen off. And their last couple of records have been unbearably awful. And yet critics... And hardcore Radiohead fans still treat each new Radiohead release like it's the newest, greatest album by the greatest band of all time. And I and I find that iconography really annoying. Okay, so let's so let me go into Radiohead post Amnesiac. My reason as to why this is a sacred cow that needs to be freaking killed. Okay, let's start. And you can chip in as, as, as I go from one album to another. We can chip in. First, oh, Hail to the Thief from 2003. Now, that is half a great album. The first half, it's got, you know, it's got some really good stuff. The second half is just, you know, a mishmash of just, you know, overly experimental rubbish that really shouldn't have been released. And you know who agrees with that? Tom York himself. In yeah, several, yep. several interviews, he's gone on record saying that album, which is a 15-track album, should have been edited to 10. And the reason was is because Nigel Godrich, the producer, they gave the band gave him free reign to choose the tracks and do the track listing for the album. Well, Godrich chose every single song from the sessions. <laughs> to put it on the album and like York, yeah, never a good idea that's why yeah, they call York, it and York's on record saying you know what we probably shouldn't have left shouldn't have allowed Godrich to do that uh, because the album should have been edited and you listen to it and yeah the second half of the album just falls apart which is a shame because there's, there's some really good stuff in the second half of the record um, but even then even then despite a couple of like the first track I forgot the name of the first song on that album which is kind of a big guitar rocker and one other one it's good but it's still kid b <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's nothing they haven't done already better on previous albums yeah more like kid c plus yeah. <laughs> well kid kids coming up later but <laughs> yeah i mean look i mean there there is uh there there is a good single that's a good uh, yeah that that's the other song i was i was thinking about yeah that, that's a good song yeah. it's a good song mm -hmm. But but it's not again. Would you put that in Radiohead the top twenty Radiohead songs or singles? Absolutely not. It wouldn't even go near that. So that's an album, and and it got praised a lot because it came out in two thousand three, and the title is a pun on "Hail to the Chief," 
which is you know something that we say about American presidents. And this is at a time when there was the, the Iraq War and George W. Bush was the president. So that was an allusion um, to the Bush presidency. So that got a lot of uh, a lot a, a lot of a lot of a kinetic uh, critic uh, talk from the from the critics and, and how important you know and how prescient Radiohead are. But that doesn't take away from the fact that it's half a good album and it should have been edited and it really isn't and wasn't and still isn't worthy of the praise that it's gotten in critic circles, in my opinion. You know. All right. Now, the next one. Uh, the next album by Radiohead, post-amnesiac era, is In Rainbows. Now, this album is pretty good. I like it. I, I don't it's hate great. it. It's great. And I'll, and I'll tell you why. But do, you, do your thing. It's good. Um, it's a good album. But in the end, it's Kids C. Because there's nothing on this record that they haven't done better previous albums including kid a amnesiac and some of hail to the thief the, this album is really more known as it's, it's it's remembered more for the way it was released than for the actual music on it because when it came out in late 2007 what it was is that they put it out basically for free basically saying of uh, this is back in you know, 2007 is a long time ago so this was this this came out at a time when um, uh, music the record label the record industry was pretty much dying and this is radiohead statement of saying okay we're going to put it out and you pay whatever you want for it and that was deemed really you know uh, iconic and legendary at the time but that's what it's most remembered for in my opinion the outtakes from in rainbows are better than most of the songs on the album i love the outtakes um, from from the album, way 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 more. Um, I mean, what, what were the singles from from In Rainbows? If you remember, well, yeah. I mean, you've got uh, uh, what is it like House of Cards, and you've got um, right. Yeah, the thing about that album, um, Two Step, which is the, which is the the most well known one, or Fifteen Step, or whatever the hell it's called. Uh, yeah, yeah it, it's almost kind of funny <laughs> that my, my brain is freezing yeah. on the track listing. Yeah, but the I, I was really a fan of that record because it has this uh, simultaneous ethereal nature with this really, really tight, uh, gorgeous lead uh, guitar work uh, from Johnny Greenwood. And so I was just a real fan of that that aesthetic of, of Tom York sounding like he's floating on a cloud on Venus but Johnny Greenwood like basically cutting the middle of the mix, almost like razor wire. Uh, and, and so there's some really, really neat stuff on that record. And, uh, and, you know, like Arturo said, I mean, I guess you could call it kid C, uh, but it's, it's just, it's good. I mean, it, it doesn't reinvent the wheel. It's, it's just a very strong, uh, relatively short, uh, 10 song, uh, traditional rock album that is just, again, just has pretty compelling hypnotic lead work uh, with these beautiful vocals. And, uh, and just, you know, it's create it's creativity. Now, again, it, it's not Kid A. It's not OK Computer. I mean, they weren't uh, uh, they weren't channeling Autech or ZZ Top at the same time. They, but not- but, but it, got, it got praised as if it were. And I think that was a little too much for me to take. Like yeah. I said. It's not a bad album. There's some stuff on here that I really like on In Rainbows. But overall, like I said, Down is the New Up and Bangers and Mash, like like the two two of the outtakes. 
they're better than almost anything on the album. Yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah, like, yeah, I mean, it. they actually, uh, there's not much of a tradition left of B-sides, but that was one of the few examples in the, uh, in the 2000s where you could say that there were strong B-sides uh, to an album. So, yeah, I mean, again, uh, not reinventing the wheel, but a strong record. I, I personally think it's their second best record, which, you know, I know that Arturo will look at me at later and be like, are you Jesus. fucking crazy? Second uh, best. Radio. Yeah, I, 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 th- I think it's second best. I actually do think it's a little bit better than OK Computer, which I guess. Uh, oh, no way. Is it? Oh, my God. Coincidentally, oh. for all of you who disagree, curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. Uh, call, call me an asshole. I will, I will answer you and I'll give you a shout out in the air, baby. So go ahead, uh, Arturo. To, that's, that, that's like saying Tattoo You is the Rolling Stones' second greatest album. <laughs> okay, I mean, if you say so, but uh, I mean, that, right, that's we'll, a great line. We'll finish quickly because the, the last two radio, the next two and their two recent albums were gigantic pieces of shit. Yes, they were. Uh, first of which, the King of Limbs from 2011 is basically Radiohead flatulating on their audience. They're not. They're not even. <laughs> By this point, they're not even trying anymore. I mean, Lotus Flower is a decent single, but like I said, everything else on the album is essentially Kid D. <laughs> it's, it's like it's, it's like everything good about Kid A, but just like watered down, take away the hooks and make it as, 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 as less interesting as possible. And yeah, then, I, nice. yeah, yeah. And then I, I save my most vitriol for the next album, the, the very recent one, a, a moon shaped pool from 2016. First of all, this is the worst piece of crap Radiohead has ever laid on the world. Uh, musically, it's basically one continuously slow, long, boring, watered-down wallpaper piece of music. It's just all too many piano ballads. It's just Tom York moping on his piano way too long. And what makes it even worse is that every single song on this on this album is a, is a, they are they're all songs from previous Radiohead albums that were outtakes, but they were rejected and then re-recorded and had some Johnny Greenwood string arrangements slapped onto him. Hey, new music. Like, that's just an insult. That's, yeah. forget, about, forget about being an insult to music fans. That's an insult to Radiohead fans in general. I mean, well, come on. Well, know, yeah. And, and look. That's you know, the, all I'm going to say is that that's the, when a band does that, when they take re- rejected songs that weren't deemed good enough for previous albums, oh, let's re-record them, put some string arrangements, voila, you know, voila, new music. That tells now, you what band is spent, that they're done. Yeah, yeah, they're spent, but here's the difference. I mean, there, there is a, an illustrious uh, tradition of middle-aged and older uh, musicians doing that that same thing. Now, Neil Young, uh, some of his albums uh, have been, like, I wrote half of this in the 70s and half of this in about four hours uh, <laughs> in my studio, like, four days ago. But the difference is, is that Neil can get away with that only because like the stuff in his vaults from between 73 and 77 is just like unassailable. And so he's one of the few people that can get away with that. But yeah, in general, Radiohead has fallen into this trap of uh, we don't need the money. We don't have much motivation. And so let's just pull out our our old shit and 
we'll, you know, again, it just, you know, we'll sprinkle some sugar on it and, and put some lipstick on it and, and we'll make it look pretty, but it's still, it's still shit. And, uh, ultimately I think the, uh, it's, it's telling that the, the most, uh, relevant thing and the best thing that you can associate with Radiohead over the last 15 years or, uh, Johnny Greenwood's scores to Paul Thomas Anderson movies, uh, some of which are amazing and some Oh yeah. I, I mean, the, there will be blood is one of the best scores I've ever heard in my life, but then he has like inherent vice, which is just like, yeah, whatever. But that's been sort of the most interesting thing. So, uh, who knows? Anyway, uh, All right. my, my, next, my, next, my next sacred cow to kill. Okay. And I'll keep this as brief as possible. I said before Radiohead post amnesiac here. Number four, Bjork post post. <laughs> now, Earl Bjork is great. You know, uh, debut and post are both really, really good albums. Um, they're kind of ahead of their time in a way. Uh, I mean, she, they, she took, you know, electronic dance music and merged it with this really you know, original brand of indie pop that had these, you know, almost awkward but very engaging melodies. And of course, she is a fantastic singer. Bjork has always been a great singer. However, after Post, and Post was a humongous success, especially in the UK. After that, since then, it's almost like she's retreated from that kind of pop music. And her music since then, from 97 onward, has basically vacillated between almost Broadway showtime, showtune style music with overwrought horns and strings and like avant-garde experimental electronica flourishes, which I guess uh, for, for intellectual critics, that sounds awesome. But me, I freaking hate Broadway show tune music. <laughs> and I'm okay with experimental yeah. electronic music, i.e. Radiohead did it really well. But the thing with Bjork and what she did is I was missing her later period stuff, just misses the bedrock of the solid appealing songcraft with hooks and melodies that characterize her early work. And I'm just not a fan of anything like Vespertine. I don't like that. I hated Medulla from 2004. That's her all acapella record. Like, does anyone I love that record, but anyway. Oh, I, I, I appreciate the fact that she's trying something new and different. It just sounds terrible. It, it, it just yeah. sounds, it sounds like corny white girl trying to do beatbox music. Yeah, but but at least she she had legitimate Esco, Eskimo throat singers on that record. So yeah, again, they, it, her. They. yeah, yeah. It's it's one of those records that's more admirable than listenable. But I I actually do. I'll give it up for that record. But yeah, you're, you're right. Uh, phony Broadway is never a good idea. Uh, real, bro- real Broadway once in a while is great. You may hear me talk about Hamilton from time to time. Right. Phony Broadway never a good idea. And Volta Volta's got a couple of good singles. But I, I saw her live in South Korea, actually, back in early 2008. And all she, the whole show, first of all, it was only like 45 minutes long. And, and we, I, I paid like $90, the equivalent of $90 for the ticket. And all she did was songs from Volta. <laughs> and one song from Post, and that was the whole show. It was really, really disappointing. Okay, my uh, sacred cow number three. And I'm going to piss off a lot of baby boomers, especially in the UK here. Uh, Sid Barrett. Uh, the iconic former frontman from Pink Floyd. Now, why I'm, I'm putting him as my sacred cow to kill, I have a lot of reasons, but I'm going to try and make it as condensed as possible. 
the one album he did with Pink Floyd was their debut album, Piper at the Gates of Dawn from 1967. It's known as this, you know, it's, it's considered one of the seminal, you know, 1960s British psychedelic rock albums. You know, it's, it's usually mentioned right up there with Sgt. Pepper's and all the other, you know, psych period uh, albums. My thing with Sid Barrett is that, have you ever listened to Piper at the Gates of Dawn? It's often unlistenable. <laughs> it's often really, really unlistenable. It hasn't aged well at all. And what he gets credit for a lot, when you, when you read a lot of critic, re, critical reviews and retrospectives on Barrett, is his lyrics. But his lyrics aren't that good. They're these cheesy, corny, whimsical, fairy tale nonsense. Oh my! Let, let, let me give you let me give you a quote. Here's a song, "The Gnome" from Piper at the Gates of Dawn. I'm going <laughs> to give you the first few lines. Are you ready? Here we go. I want to tell you a story about a little man. If I can, a gnome named Grimble Grumble and little gnomes stay in their homes. <laughs> that is a Sid Barrett lyric. He wrote hey, that. I didn't realize you were alive in 1968. You resemble that remark. <laughs> There's another one. Uh, oh, yeah, this one uh, from a song called Flaming, one of the tracks off this. Okay. Alone in the clouds, all blue, lying on an elder town. Yippee, you cannot see me, but I see you. Oh, oh man, so precious. It gleams in the sun. <laughs> you know, and then, of course, you have bike. You know, I've got a bike. You can ride it if you like. It's got a basket and a bell that rings and things to make it look good. I'd give it to you if I could, but I borrowed it. I mean, really? <laughs> this, this is the lyrical brilliance of Sid Barrett. Christ's sake. Only the British can like this garbage. I'm telling you. All right. What else? What other reason why Sid Barrett is a sacred cow that needs to be murdered? He was an average guitar player whose supposed innovation was surpassed by other guitarists of his era, i.e. Pete Townsend, Jimi Hendrix, Jerry Garcia. You know, the supposed innovation of, 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 of Sid Barrett on his guitar playing is basically overpassed by the fact that during this time, during the era of the early Floyd, it was Richard Wright, the keyboard player, the classically trained keyboard player, who was the real musical architect, you know, of that group. This is before Roger Waters became an egomaniac and took the band over, you know. And I think it's telling the best song on Piper at the Gates of Dawn is the, the 10, 11 minute instrumental jam. Interstellar Interstellar Overdrive, which is the one that, you know, Sid Barrett had the least input in writing, you know. And another thing, they got better after he left. <laughs> I mean, there's no doubt Pink Floyd became a better band after he left, you know. And his solo work that he made after Piper at the Gates of Dawn from the, from the late 60s to the early 70s, yeah. it really is, um, it's really just a solo work. His solo work is the, the gibberish of a mentally ill person. And he was mentally ill because, I mean, he, he, had, he had his LSD flame out. Yeah, I was um, going to say, go, go, go figure. Uh, yeah, LSD uh, flame out makes music that sounds like an LSD flame out. So. Yeah. I mean, but if you think about it, and a lot of what I read about him, it, it seems that he, more, more, he really had latent mental illness that was exacerbated by the excessive LSD. And a lot of his solo work is, like I said, the gibberish of a mentally ill ill person lacking the soul and spirit that other crazy mentally ill songwriters like Daniel Johnston had and injected into their work. 
If you if, if, if uh, people listening don't know Daniel Johnston, go listen to Daniel Johnston. Yeah, that, absolutely. That you, is you an outsider, outsider, weirdo, crazy freak uh, icon who deserves his iconography status. So basically, he was a very moderately talented bohemian with latent mental illness exacerbated by excessive LSD, and he flamed out, leaving very little of actual good music. The end. <laughs> okay, Chris, what do you think of Sid Barrett? <laughs> yeah, here's here's my take on Sid Barrett. I think that uh, Arturo's pretty right on that uh, there was there was a preciousness uh, to his to his stuff that is 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 funny. Um, do I think he wrote? I think he he had a style. I mean, there was that psychedelic pop. It was definitely artsier, fartsier, and yeah, you know, I've I've never quite gotten it either. I think and, that and it just lacks depth. There's nothing deep about it. There's nothing. Right. About it. Yeah, I know. I mean, it, it it lilts and you know it it has those kind of weird kind of ups and downs and jams and those types of things, and it's compelling. But look, Sid Barrett's greatest uh, contribution to rock was uh, melting down and paving the way for Roger Waters and David Gilmour uh, to, to take find, over the band. Yeah, yeah, to, to find their voices as songwriters and arrangers, and uh, to get the uh, amazing stuff that we got out of the uh, reconfigured Pink Floyd in the mid seventies. Uh, Animals being one of my favorite records. So, uh, in a way, thank you, Sid Barrett, for paving the way for Animals. <laughs> So that, that's really his legacy to me. All right. Now, Sacred Cow number two, the only American on my list, Scott Walker. The irony, that he's a, the fact of him being American, is he was only big in the UK. I swear to God, his, his godhood is a, is a UK thing because in the US, most people don't give a shit about him. Basically, in the 1960s, he started out as a trio, you know, with a, with two other guys. They weren't related, but they called themselves the Walker Brothers. <laughs> and the three of them were American. And they moved to the – they couldn't get anything in the, U, in the U.S., so they moved to the U.K. And they basically became the American answer to what the Bee Gees were in the 1960s, although they predated the Bee Gees a little bit. When I say the Bee Gees, I don't mean the disco Bee Gees. I mean the 60s pop Bee Gees of which uh, there's a great HBO documentary out that uh, you should check out when you get a chance. But anyway, um, they started out and basically they did Andy Williams style pop songs, you know, very orchestral, very symphonic songs about love and, and the, and the teenage girls gushed over them. Well, they broke up. Scott Walker went solo and his, when he went solo, his music got more serious and basically serious and darker. Okay. Now that sounds good. That sounds cool. Sounds interesting, especially when he's doing covers. And early on, his his, his first couple of solo records, Scott, Scott Two, Scott Three, a lot of covers, mostly by the French writer Jacques Brel. Jacques Brel was a was a legendary French songwriter known for his um his uh, character vignettes or his character sketch or character study songs about sad, sad loners and losers or down on the, down on the outs, you know, basically kind of like, and junkies and, and, and prostitutes and all that kind of thing. Basically he was, you know, the French Lou Reed before Lou Reed <laughs> writing about, you know, the deviance of society. And Scott Walker covered a lot of his songs. He also covered Tim Harden songs as well. But then what happened is that when Scott Walker started writing his own songs, they basically just sounded like Jacques Brel ripoffs. <laughs> basically doing the same thing Jacques Brel was doing, 
you know, sad lunar, sad lo- losers and loners, character studies, prostitutes, pimps, blah, 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 getting drunk at a bar and all that crap. But okay, it sounds good, but you already covered a bunch of these songs by a guy who did that, you know? And musically, I just never got the praise that Scott Walker's string arrangements got by a lot of critics. To me, it's just syrupy, saccharine, maudlin string arrangements that overwhelm the songs and bring them down to the level of kitsch. And, it, and, and he comes off sounding more like a more depressed Frank Sinatra. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, pr- 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 pretty much. If you have an over-reliance on strings in rock and roll, uh, you're in trouble. It's one of the reasons why. I mean, I know my mother is a Moody Blues fan, but I just laugh. Uh, <laughs> that, 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 that's, that, that's ridiculous strings, but not as ridiculous as Walker's. The stuff I've heard no. from Walker, yeah. that's ridiculous strings. Yeah. However, that being said, Scott Four from 1969, that's a good album. That's actually a genuinely good album. It's his only good album because, A, the songs are his best songs and melodies are on it. His best lyrics are on it. And the string arrangements are kept low in the mix and they don't overwhelm the songs. So he knew better. He knew better at that time to do that. So basically, after that, the album, he took a long break. There was a brief Walker Brothers reunion in the 1970s that no one gave a shit about. <laughs> he came back. Then he came back starting in the 1980s, putting out one, an album, once one album every decade. And uh, um, starting with, I think, was it Tilt? No, Tilt was from 95. I forgot what it was. I think something, something of The Hunter. Yeah, um, um, The Hunter, 1984. An album every decade of basically unlistenable avant-garde noise rubbish with supposedly um, impressionistic, but really inscrutable, pretentious, rubbish lyrics. So from the 1980s onward, once a decade, he would release an unlistenable piece of avant-garde crap that only, you know, British music journalists liked. <laughs> so basically, I'm going to finish my Scott Walker entry with a quote from the, sci- from the sci-fi writer Robert Heinlein. And I'm paraphrasing this quote. Artistic abstraction is often the mechanism of artists who really can't communicate. <laughs> and yeah. that's how, that's how yeah, I'm that's right. You know, <laughs> got to give it up. Uh, you know, co- co- coincidentally, uh, Arturo is going to get a, uh, a steady stream of hate mail from British journalists who really want some work uh, these days because it's, it's getting harder to come by. So Arturo, <laughs> ex- expect uh, plenty of hate mail. So anyway. And finally, my number one, uh, Sacred Cow to Bash. Number one, oh, God, how I hate this woman's music, Kate Bush. <laughs> I, I, I will acknowledge that Hounds of Love is a good album from 1985. That's a good record. I mean, Running Up That Hill is a, it's a good pop song. Okay. All her indulgent tendencies from her early work were pared down. Uh, it's a good production. You know, considering it's the mid-1980s. Um, it's a solid record. It's been a bit influential. But here, here are the thing. This is the case. Kate Bush is one of those cases where the influencees are better than the influencers. For example, Tori Amos, you know, uh, Florence and the Machine, particularly the early Florence and the Machine work, and artists of that ilk. I would take them over anything Kate Bush ever did. Agreed. You know, Clearly influenced by Kate Bush, but Tori Amos, for example, is a much better singer, much better songwriter, much better musician. Okay. And when I'm talking about Kate Bush, I'm talking about her early work, really. 
Her early work was marked by overly theatrical histrionics, not just her stage show, which was basically a Broadway musical with multiple costume changes and her dancing in different costumes and doing different personas and acting like, you know, acting like an unbearable twit. Okay. But the histrionics were in the recordings themselves. And the histrionics came in the form of the most unbearably badly overused falsetto in the history of pop rock. Like, uh, I mean, Wuthering Heights, her first big hit. It's actually a pretty decent song that's ruined by her vocals, you know. And, and you combine that with the schlock, weepy ballad songwriting that, that basically covered her first four albums. This weepy, mopey ballad piano ballad crap that just lacked emotional punch in any real depth you know before hounds of love she had the dreaming in 1982 which was her supposed transitional record and while it is bold in its attempt to shed her pop audience that album goes overboard with all this dissonant awkward vocal phrasings even more so than usual <laughs> and the overall artsy fartsy flim flam of the production and the and 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 just you know the the, the, the silly silly just overly artsy music that just doesn't really connect on any emotional level you know and then after hounds of love the records that she made just just have dated very badly and they sound very much of their time the sensual world from 1989 sounds like a big booming drum track album from the 80s you know, the Red Shoes from 1993 sounds like an early 90s overly processed pop record. And yeah, and after that, like, why would you want to listen to anything from Kate Bush after that? So, yeah. 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 Tell and, us how you really feel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, that's the thing. You know, Kate Bush, I mean, this is something that will come up on my list. But when the best thing you've ever done is on somebody else's record. Uh, yeah. What was the song you did on Peter Gabriel's oh, record? Uh, don't give up. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Tr uh, tremendous song. Uh, great vocal by Kate Bush. But yeah, uh, Bush, Kate Bush bores the, the shit out of me too, but I didn't care quite enough to put her on my list. So yeah. <laughs> I did. <laughs> good, good job, Arturo, for telling us how you really feel. Now you're asking yourself, okay, Arturo, uh, in his performance art, uh, gave us his uh, sacred cows. Uh, me, me particularly will always be a fan of that Kate Bush rant, and uh, you'll, you'll, you'll probably be uh, experiencing a snippet of just that rant on our sites on Medium and Anchor and Patreon, so uh, stay tuned for that. Anyway, so my list. Uh, so... Uh, really a theme of, of, of my list. There's a couple of, of themes to it. It's again, uh, these are all good artists. I just never got the adoration and mostly good artists. Okay. Okay. Most, mostly, mostly, but, uh, what, you know, but here's the thing that, uh, you'll find, and this is something I say, and I've made this joke about Ted Bundy, uh, handsome guys can get away with anything. 
Um, oh, and so, dark, handsome guys who are yeah, moody. exactly. They're mysterious. They're dark. Uh, you know, they they have that cool without even trying. Uh, uh, those types of things, and so. Uh, a lot of this because very subjective annoyance, me just sort of shrugging my shoulders and just really not getting it. And uh, I would say my list probably pushes the envelope a little bit more than Arturo's. And uh, I think in at least two of these cases, he will vehemently disagree with me. But Chris, Chris so let's just, start the list. Chris is just jealous that he is in a tall, dark, handsome, moody guy. <laughs> uh, that said, uh, Elvis Costello is my number five. Okay. Uh, that might turn a lot of people, but here's what I, I'll give you the, the brief uh, v- version of how I see Costello's career. Uh, he made himself on two slightly overrated records and then was able to further his popularity through a couple of actually underrated records. Uh, and then he gets to 1986, he drops two records that year. And then from there, he's been phoning it in ever since just about, uh, with a couple of, uh, interesting spots here and there. Uh, here's a guy that I guess was so, you know, dying for hipster credibility that he did this absolutely awful album with the roots. Uh, that's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. It was it was a desperate attempt for a comeback or for some sort of crossover or relevance. And and so he's really just been sort of floating in the ether for 35 years. But even before then, uh, sure, you know, was there disaffection? Sure. You know, was there talent? Uh, Absolutely. But here's here's my thing uh, with him. I'll give it up for Armed Forces and Imperial Bedroom. I, I think those are his two best records personally. Uh, a lot of folks give a shout out to this year's model. Obviously, it shows up on a lot of uh, 100 greatest albums of all time. And I'm just like, eh, it's got a couple of great uh, singles and a couple of great songs on it. But otherwise, not very moved. But here's the thing. Elvis Costello's best song, his best recorded song is What's So Funny About Peace, Love and Understanding, which was written by Nick Lowe. Yeah. And so. <laughs> And so the best song in his entire catalog is not even written by Elvis Costello. And perhaps if you go on uh, royalties, it's probably the, the song he's made, made the most money off of. And it's not even his song, uh, <laughs> you know. And then uh, he also you know, is, has some renown as a producer uh, and, you know, helped produce some of those records. But the best production jobs he ever did were for Squeeze and for Paul McCartney. So, I mean, look, this, uh, I just don't, his, his stuff never really resonated that deeply with me. Uh, I think that it's just more, his shtick is more cute uh, uh, than, than anything. And again, I just think that uh, you, you run out of ideas and you run out of inspiration. And so what do you do? You spend, uh, you know, oh, let's do a jazzy record here, or, you know, let's do a, uh, you know, like a like an old an old timey sounding record here, or let's collaborate let's with do, let's, do a, let's do a snooze fest with Burt Bacharach because people were really asking to hear that. Oh yeah, 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 exactly. Or you know, I mean, nineteen I mean, ninety eight. I remember listening to that. I, I just like I just couldn't get through it. It's like, oh my god, this is just unlistenable. Oh, it's, oh yeah, my old men. Yeah. I mean, and this is the thing. I mean, and, and, and Costello is, is one of these guys that he always knew he can go out and make a few bucks by, you know, uh, 
you know, selling, like licensing some of his old stuff or going out and getting paid for a show and all that. So uh, he didn't give a fuck. So he was just, he was having fun uh, and, and, you know, fun to him, I guess, equal bad music over and over and over again. I mean, look, I mean, if you, if you want to see what, what's his greatest accomplishment of the last 30 years is probably uh, marrying Diana Krall. Uh, good, <laughs> good, good going there, Elvis. You know, I'm, that's the, that's about the one thing I'm, El, uh, I'm, I'm jealous of Elvis Costello about, but uh now, uh, Arturo, I know that you disagree probably with some of my early uh, sentiments about his early catalog and about his his status, but but again, I just I just thought he was boring and dopey for the most part. I'll be I'll be diplomatic. I absolutely adore early Elvis Costello from 1977 to like 81. I love all those records. Um, I will and throughout the rest, of, like like most 60s and 70s bands and artists in the 80s, they all kind of fell apart <laughs> and went to shit, you know, yep. for and Elvis is no uh, Costello is no I refuse to call him Elvis. It's Costello. <laughs> uh, yeah. Costello is no exception. Um, oh, he did. Uh, he did two albums in 1986 that were quite good. Blood and Chocolate and King of America, which I really like a lot. Mm-hmm. But I will I will agree with you from 1989 onward. There is no such thing as a great or even a very good Elvis Costello record. <laughs> they're, they're all they're all either mediocre or they just outright suck. What I will say is that from 1989 onward, there is a smattering of really good songs here and there. Oh, sure, sure. You know that that that, that, that and I, I for me in my personal music collection, I've compiled them. In my 1989 to 2008 folder <laughs> for Elvis yeah. Costello, and I put them all in there. So I do see what you're saying. And the last thing I'm going to say is that before he had his recent cancer scare, um, and since then he's mellowed out considerably. Um, he's usually known to be a pretty cantankerous interview. You know? Oh yeah, and and uh, yeah, he's kind of he was known as being kind of a dick. And a few years ago, before he had the cancer scare. Um, he gave an interview with Mojo, and I'll give Mo the Mojo writer credit. And um, um, I think it was a he or a she, I'm not sure. But uh, the writer, he, she, um, kind of like stood up to him and told him, "Hey, well, how do you uh, how do you respond to the fact of the, the criticism you've had over the years that in your songs there's not enough space in your music? You know that you overcrowd the songs with words." And there's too yes, many. I mean, that, that is one of my chief complaints with, with Elvis Costello. Yeah. And Costello's answer was, was very petulant. It was like, well, you know, if you really listen to my music, you see there's a lot of space in my songs. <laughs> and then, and then the, uh, uh, the reviewer uh, the, or the interviewer um, asked him another question. Well, how do you respond to the fact that, you know, there's a general consensus that since the mid 1980s, um, you know, your stuff hasn't been as good as your earlier stuff. I'm paraphrasing, of course, but that's basically what the interviewer said. And he goes, oh, well, and he was equally petulant. He's like, well, I, I would say those people aren't open-minded enough <laughs> to listen to, to my to my later period music. It's like, fuck you, asshole. <laughs> you know? yeah, 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 seriously, fuck you, asshole. Yeah, and 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 that's the thing. Like I said, I mean, just the, you know, a lot a lot of his stuff, you know, either was overly precious or yeah, you know, like, uh, like Arturo alluded to, it sounded like a train going off the tracks and that's just a me. Yeah. Um, and, okay. and look, you know, he's got some great stuff. I mean, Imperial bedroom as a, um, uh, as an exercise, that's a great record. Uh, armed forces is a great record. Uh, it, but again, I just, I just don't understand one. I never understood how he got to that iconic phase in the first place. And then two, it's just like, he's been living off uh, that ever since. Okay. Number four, 
Yes. Uh, also pushing the envelope. Nine inch nails. Ooh. And so here's my take on here's my take on nine inch nails. Uh, Trent Reznor is very, very, very talented, uh, incredible producer, um, and he, as a conceptualist, he uh, is. You know, I think he deserves props for being an innovator. Here's the thing, though. He's just phony. Uh, I just don't get you know him as that. To me, it's it's a really good shtick, and uh, it all sounds uh, wonderful. I know that Arturo will remember that the number one album on my list in 1999 was The Fragile. And this was more as an achievement. It was an album that was easier to admire than to actually listen to. Uh, that was this. Uh, this was Reznor, Flood, and Alan Mulder just putting together studio art. But but again, I just and you know he had this sort of mopey, emotive. Uh, you know, the, the world sucks, and this kind of uh, almost pain is pleasure uh, shtick. But I just never found authenticity uh, in him. And it always kind of baffled me that there were all these peers of ours that really fell hard uh, uh, for, for him and for them. And maybe it was the aesthetic. Maybe it was uh, that you know, what I thought was Reznor's phony uh, tropes on alienation actually resonated with a lot of these kids. Um, and then if you, if you really look at it uh, since, I mean, look, he, he, he broke big with a downward spiral, which I'll admit is probably his best record overall. Oh, yeah. uh, but since then, I mean, he had a great single in The Perfect Drug. Then I said, you know, The Fragile was this was this great shining monument to studio art. And then he had the album With Teeth in 2005, uh, which I actually really liked in, in some respects because it featured a lot of live drums uh, by Dave Grohl. I thought that was an interesting mix. But even then, I mean, the phoniness was dripping. And then somewhere along the way, he got sober. You know, he had an alcohol issue. Um, oh, no, no. He got sober way before that. With Teeth is his first sober album. Okay. So with Teeth, he was actually sober. I remember during the videos from 2005, he was all buff and muscular. He started oh. lifting weights after he got sober. Oh, okay. I, I For whatever reason, uh Okay, well then, that's even a bigger indictment of his phoniness. That even after he got sober, he was still, you know, not yeah, really. Watch, watch, watch the watch the video for like um uh what's what's the single from two thousand five, um the big single, uh oh. it, it's, it's the George Bush rant. Um, oh yeah, no, I yeah I know, the hand, I know. That, feeds, the hand that feeds. Yeah, look oh, at the yeah. video. It's kind of grainy because they're going for that for that aesthetic. His his arms are. Off. He looks like Hulk Hogan. He's like clutching the microphone with really short. Like he look. He looks. He looks like Henry Rollins on steroids. He's like yeah, really yeah. short hair and big muscles, like grabbing that mic. Yeah, 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 exactly. So he went from one phony extreme to another, and and again, and that's really the theme for me with Reznor. It's just phony, and uh, and I think what proves that is that what what have been his greatest accomplishments in the last ten years. Uh, he's partnered with Atticus Ross and has done lots of uh, soundtracks, lot, lots of scores. Uh, the most recent one, which is the most telling, and I, I guess it speaks to his talent, but also to you know lack of conviction, is he did the uh, score to a uh, great movie, by the way, Soul. Uh, you should check that out. It's uh, Pixar's newest movie. 
Uh, but he did the soundtrack to that, which is more sort of jazz heavy. And so, okay, so it speaks to talent, but it's like, uh, it's, it's the epitome of just sort of, um, I don't know, lacquer as opposed to, to substance. And so that, that's really my complaint with, uh, with, with NIN and why I would call them a sacred cow is that, uh, he, he built up this, this shtick and this veneer, uh, and did it incredibly artfully well and is at probably genius level. But I just saw through it and I just don't understand the uh, the reverence and, and the deification of the guy. I really don't. There was a one at one point in time I would have agreed with you um, because I, I, I like I said, I, I was I was one of those who thought the fragile would have been a great single record. And for a while I didn't like with teeth and I was kind of down on NIN, but uh, in recent years, I've actually learned to appreciate them more. Now I'm with you on the fragile. I agree with you on the fragile. Um, I like it quite a bit. Um, I've learned to like with teeth for what it is. It's basically pop nine inch nails. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah, it's it's a fun record. It's streamlined. It's streamlined nine inch nails but done well and only he can do it because he's nine inch nails <laughs> right True. Um, i i actually like year zero because it's kind of a bold record that's basically his laptop album he recorded the whole <laughs> thing on a laptop and and that's kind of and that's an engaging record to me i i like the it's the first nine inch nails album from 2007 year zero that isn't about his emotions and his feelings and him feeling alienated and him being heartbroken and blah, blah, blah. It's actually, it's actually kind of a socio-political bet about a future world where fascism takes over and all that. And I, I guess, I mean, as you know, he, he was in his early forties when that time came out. So I'm sure he was um, uh, pretty affected by the Bush administration at the time. Um, he put, and then he got married, got really happy, had kids, Put out a, an album in 2013. Uh, forgot the name, but it's a, it's a good thing that I forgot because it's a really, really bad album. Um, <laughs> it's basically Nine Inch Nails being happy, him writing joyous songs about finding lost love and all that stuff, and I finally found a love and you know, all that kind of yeah. crap. Yeah, and it's really and musically, it's really nothing special or different. It's called Hesitation Marks, actually. Now that I remember it. Yeah, and, and Arturo just made the best distillation of my argument for me, which is once he started being sincere, boy, did he suck. Uh, however, yeah. however, Bad Witch from 2018 is a good record. That's a yeah. good album. Yeah. I like that album because basically uh, th- that album was released two years after David Bowie died. And uh, Bowie was a big influence on Reznor and a big, uh, a big help in his career. And you can hear a big um, later period uh, uh, Black Star influence on that album. It's very jazzy in parts. Um, I, I, I quite like Bad Witch. I, I think it's actually his best studio work since The Fragile. Um, however, the ghost stuff, um, the recent ghost things that he did is just one long languid piano solo after another. It's something you listen to. It's something you listen to if you have insomnia. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that that's pretty much what the soul soundtrack is, or the score uh, is, is a lot of that kind of. Uh, 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 and again, um, the guy is incredibly talented. I just never, I just never understood why the shtick resonated as, as well as it did. So, uh, anyway, yeah, we will move on. And so, number three, Depeche Mode. Oh boy! <laughs> and now we're now we're really pushing the envelope here. And 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 again, you know, handsome guys get away with everything. Uh, 
So here's my take on Depeche Mode. If we were still in 1987 or even 1984, um, I would adore them. Uh, they really did uh, create a special kind of electronic uh, rock and roll. Um, some of the best uh, drum programming ever done by white people uh, are on some of those uh, some of those records uh, you know, from the uh, from that era. Uh, you know, especially, uh, you know, Some Great Reward uh, is, is just a brilliant record. That's the one with the People Are People uh, on it, uh, it, for those that are wondering. And so there's just some genius stuff on there. And then music for the masses uh, after that. I mean, I've always appreciated that. You know, Martin Gore, uh, really talented guy, great songwriter. Dave Gahan, actually, you know, he's epitome of, of that era's uh, sort of uh, British, uh, quote unquote, deep thinking front man. You know, yeah. and so so they had built up this following. Uh, they're kind of like the Metallica of British electronic music in the sense that yeah. they they built up this cult and and sort of, you know, built up like 10 fans at a time. And you keep doing that over years. Eventually you have millions of fans. And so they swung for the fences and comes Violator and Violator explodes them into uh, into. Yeah, it's in the gazillionaire status. Uh, although to be fair, "Personal Jesus" might actually be their best uh, single. Um, you know, anything that can be covered well by Johnny Cash is probably a great single. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, but then there's just this. Okay, so they swung for the fences. They became rock stars, and then they just got annoying. And and from there, it was it was this sort of. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously that's when drugs kind of kicked in and, and at least ruined Gahan and there, it just sort of, they became insufferable. And, you know, I never much cared for the stuff, uh, from the early nineties and the mid nineties. And again, you know, they got to a point where they, uh, were just not just phoning it in, but, the, but, you know, they, they were content to be British, uh, rock, you know, British music royalty. And, and so the attitude was just sort of annoying and they must not have been very likable because even after a pandemic, they got elected to the uh, rock and roll hall of fame right. last year with, uh, nine they, inch <laughs> with, with nine inch nails, ironically enough. Uh, but uh, they were inducted by Charlize Theron. So they must not have been very popular and made a whole lot of friends. Uh, and, <laughs> but, you know, there, there's bands out there that they influenced. I know that, you know, bands like Coldplay and, and there's a bunch of uh, younger bands that cite Depeche Mode as an influence, but man, even in the middle of a pandemic, you couldn't get any better, anybody better than that to nominate their own to induct you. Yeah, I mean, look, there, there, there might be a, a common theme with the Nine Inch Nails and Depeche Mode being on here. Maybe, maybe it's it speaks to my own sort of personal annoyance, or <laughs> not, not really even insecurity. But look, you know. Depeche Mode was big when I was like a, a freshman and sophomore in, in high school. Uh, Nine Inch Nails broke when I was in college. And it was like you had all these people that I, you know, look, I'm weird. And these are the people I thought were weird. And so that ought to tell you how weird I thought they were. And right. they felt there was this big cult around both Depeche Mode and Nine Inch Nails. And so it's kind of like this association of like, what is the depth that they're seeing? And again, I mean, Depeche Mode is their 80s stuff look they invented a genre i mean yeah. basically they invented a genre and so any band that invents a genre you got to give it up for them 
But then it's like, you know, as Arturo said in, in his half of the sacred cow exercise, at some point you lose your mojo or, you know, things get thrown off. And then what do you do from there? It's kind of like, uh, in some ways, these bands, uh, you can compare them to, let's say like a Gale Sayers or somebody like that in, in sports that's good for seven years. Well, okay, well, at 28 and 29, they're washed up. What do they do for the rest of their lives? Uh, so it's like that with some of these bands. And so they get into the 50s and 60s and it's like, dude, it's time to kill you. And you, yeah. you, ain't, you, you ain't that sacred anymore. And, you know, people our age, uh, maybe even younger that are holding on to these bands as exemplars. It's like, man... Yeah, again, if the Pesh Mode was still in 1984, would love them. Here in 2021, and as I've grown up, it just doesn't make any sense to me that they, they would maintain that reverence. So. See, my thing with Depeche Mode, I, I didn't used to like them. I was never a fan until my mid-30s when I uh, lived for a brief spell in Chile. And uh, I was dating this girl who was a big Depeche Mode fan. <laughs> dating yeah. this woman. She wasn't a young girl. She was roughly my age. And um, she got me into them and I, and I learned to appreciate them. Um, I appreciate the narrative arc of their career because when they started out in the early 80s, they, even though their influences were like uh, uh, their influences were kind of, you know, hardcore, dark synth pop or electronic music, they themselves were teeny bopper synth pop, you know, with just can't get enough. I just can't get enough, you know, that. And, and they started out with that. And basically a, a, a teeny bopper version of what Gary Newman was doing. Yeah. And then, and, but then, then they, and they, they found their own niche and they got more and they, they maintained their electronicness, if you will. But they found a dark gothic branch of that. Yes. As, the, as the mid eighties went on to the late eighties, they saw what the cure were doing. Okay. Well, l l let's do, l let's do the electronic version of what the cure are doing. And they, and like you said, they invented something. They were very inventive. And, and that's to me when Depeche Mode got really interesting. And that's when they became influential on groups like nine inch nails and a lot of, a lot of the industrial stuff that was big in the, in the late eighties, early nineties. Um, Leading up to Violator, which was like that's their that's their Joshua Tree basically, yeah. and um and and me personally, my favorite Depeche Mode album is the one from 1993, Songs of Faith and Devotion. That's the most. It's still an electronic record, but it's it's the edgiest and the most and the rockingest they ever got, and surprisingly, in, in, you know, slyly their most eclectic record. Yeah. So, yeah. I if you, if you get around to listen to that album, I recommend you listen to that. That's the album that got me into Depeche Mode, and I went backward from there. Yeah, and and, and of course it worked the other way for me. Was uh, I really uh, appreciated and uh, learned to love minimal uh, Depeche Mode? You know, like and all that stuff from the uh, the mid eighties with all that strong drum programming and uh, acoustic you know, echoing uh, uh, vocals. Uh, that stuff was great. But then as they got more maximal, then they got like more insufferable and you know it just I, I i could i couldn't dig it and and again it by that point you know dave gahan and at least dave gahan had such a cult built up that he could do no could no wrong could do no wrong i mean i mean he you yeah. know like you know he could have put himself out uh, of an album like gargling diarrhea you know he could have put out his own version of two girls one cup and <laughs> like, a, a whole bunch of like of our peers from gen x women would be like oh us curmudgeons will always take a little time to give a shout out to the rebels keeping the spirit of rock and roll alive. 
It's a powerful spirit that can sometimes be found in unusual places. The Reddit group Wall Street Bets potentially started a revolution recently by taking on the major head funds and making a run on GameStop, AMC, and other stocks. That caused a massive short squeeze that cost these funds many billions of dollars and also caused Robinhood to shatter its own brand by blocking trades to these companies. Elon Musk and other influencers responded by talking up cryptocurrency. An incredible thing potentially exploded forth in a span of 48 hours. Simply put, that's pretty damn badass. So check out Wall Street Bets on Reddit today and join the fray. Viva la revolution. Speaking of dark heartthrobs, number two. Okay, so, so number two, uh, the cure. Mm. Uh, yeah, but I, I, look, if they're the cure, then the rest of the world is a disease. Uh, <laughs> you know, let's just put it this way. Okay, so the thing with the cure is, uh, again, you know, one of the premises here is that nobody's saying that these bands didn't deserve to be successful. Um, these are all good bands. Uh, they're all objectively good bands. They all original. They all contributed something to the rock canon. And look, The Cure had an aesthetic um, with that sort of uh, moody uh, guitar, the sort of the, um, the the hypnotic effect. You know, Robert Smith's uh, uh, vocals uh, that you know, I'm so sad. You know, and sort of the persona. And so it's one of the, it's one of the great personas in rock history. But the problem is, it's boring. It's really, really boring uh, for the most part. Uh, okay. Uh, four great singles. Um, th- my favorite of their songs is Friday. I'm in love. Why? Because the it's the least cure song imaginable. And, uh, and look, if they had done way more of that and way less of the other shit, I would probably be a fan, but Look, you know, Disintegration, which a lot of people think is their best record. Uh, I'll give it up. Really great lyrics on that record, especially the titles, uh, especially the title song. I mean, just amazing lyrics. And sure. I, the Cure, I like The Cure. I don't love them. I like them. I don't love them. But to me, Disintegration is the most overrated of their albums. Yeah. Because it's, it's front loaded. The first half's got all the good rocking and pop songs on it. The second half of Disintegration is one monotonous, same-sounding, mid-tempo bore after another. <laughs> well, I mean, but, but, but I would extend that argument to the whole record besides Love Song. I mean, Love Song is, 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 a, is, is a really good single. That's one of the four singles I was talking oh, about. Fascination Street's a good song. Yeah, and, and look, and, and so you get some other, look, very strong lyrically. Again, Disintegration is a really moving breakup song. Um, that really resonates. Um, it's kind of like blood on the track for uh, tracks for androgynous British guys. Uh, <laughs> I mean, come on. But like every song on that record has like this two minute intro that yeah. is the same riff. And it's just like, okay, so it's either supposed to hypnotize me or let make me gaze at my shoes on the good end. And it's either supposed to make me fall asleep or jump out a window on the, on the other end. And that's like a lot of their stuff. I mean, really, I mean, uh, their, their stuff from 1979, uh, is kind of the same thing, just way more lo-fi. It's this sort of, yeah. you know, it's this sort of, well, it's a bore fest. 
And it's pretty. And, goth, it's more post punk than goth. That early yeah. tier. Oh, I know. Yeah, that early stuff. It's more, it's more post punk, but it's the same thing. It's the it's that sort of uh, m- melodic melodic guitar that's all dressed up with nowhere to go. And it's just, you know, look, you know, Robert Smith is a great character, you know, the hair, uh, you know, the, 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 the pudginess, the, uh, the voice, the moodiness, and I'll give it up for him. Uh, great singer, great lyricist, but the band is just boring and has been boring since day one with the exception of those four singles. And again, they're another band. I mean, look, uh, I, will say, I will say this about the cure. Their best album, in my opinion, is 1982's Pornography. Mm-hmm. And that's the album that pretty much killed goth because yeah. it's, the, it's the greatest goth album ever. Like Bauhaus never did an album as good as that. Oh, no. Th- th- that, to me, is The Cure's greatest record, not Disintegration, not The Head at the Door, even though I like that album. But I mean, if, if you really want to hear good goth, the Cure's Pornography from 1982, which, by the way, that the band record, uh, inspired by LSD. The band were tripping on acid in the studio when they were. Yeah, like, go uh, figure. I mean, that, that, that must have been the that must have been the worst, uh, or that must have been the corniest acid trip ever. <laughs> you know what I mean? But uh, yeah, and and look, I mean, yeah, did they between them and Bauhaus and a few other of their contemporaries? Yeah, they helped invent a genre too. Uh, I do think that Disintegration on, on Balance is probably their best record, which is, you know, ought to tell you something about my disdain. Because, uh, again, <laughs> Disintegration is is wonderful lyrics that with everything else that's just boring. Um, and so, again, you know, rock on Robert Smith. He came up with something good, but I really don't get it. I, I, wish, he would change, I wish he would change his look. Because back in his heyday in the 80s and early 90s, he had, you know, the, the makeup, the big, you know, uh, Braid up hair and all that, and he looked all mysterious and gothy and and dark. And now he's in his early sixties, and he's still wearing makeup, and he's still put, and he's still spraying up his hair. And now he just looks like a fat old drag queen. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, back, back then, you could say he was innovative, but now, nah, I don't know. <laughs> no, yeah. no, come on, give it up, Robert. Yeah, I, yeah, I know. I mean, it's, yeah, it's it, it it it's time to get out of the drag phase, there, dude. Uh, you, you might have been innovative back then, but not anymore. So, okay. So moving on, uh, my number, number one, one. Uh, yes. drum, drum roll, please. And uh, my friend Susan Mulliken and lots of other uh, uh, women of the 90s will probably come uh, chasing after me with torches and pitchforks. Pavement. <laughs> so here's my thing about pavement. One of, one of my all-time favorite bands. Yes. One, one of Arturo's all-time favorite bands. Now... See, here's the thing with pavement. It's it's it, this is not going to be a hate fest on pavement. It, again, the whole premise here is I just don't get it, and I just don't see, you know, you know, I don't understand how one how the statics got there to begin with, but two how it's managed to persist. So, look, Bright in the Corners uh, from 1997 is probably one of the top five uh, rock records of the 90s. I'll give it up. That is a great record. Um, obviously, you know, one of the greatest lyrics of all time is on that, you know, about, uh, you know, what, what about the, the voice? Yeah. yeah. How did it get so high? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Some, some great stuff. And then just a lot of, a lot of beautiful melodic stuff on that. But here's what I always said about uh, pavement. It was good music done badly. 
Um, I never understood it. I mean, look, uh, if, if that guy's the king of id, then he, it, then id really needs a dethroning. Uh, it's sort of this deliberately, I can't sing. Yeah, I can't sing. So you should admire me for that. Uh, he played his guitar solos uh, like he wanted it to be in another song. And it was sort of an un- un- intentional thing. And it's like, oh, aren't I clever? Uh, and so that, that so that's just a lot of the pavement thing is that it was this, um, look, you know, did it in arguably artfully uh, convey a certain disaffection, a certain uh, alienation or solemnity? Uh, sure. Uh, did it also uh, convey some attitude? Sure. I mean, I mean, I, I really do like stuff like Conduit for Sale. And, you know, there's some stuff that's mixed in uh, that is fantastic. But, but on, you know, on uh, balance, it's just really hard to, uh, to take some of the stuff uh, seriously. And, I mean, look, I mean, you know, Malcolmus, again, you know, look, uh, talented songwriter, talented lyricist, I'll get that. But, again, he's another one of these insufferable guys that basically one of my lines about him is that he's the guy – that he's the, just this cool, mysterious uh, slacker guy that all the Gen X girls wanted to sleep with. And he's the guy that all the Gen X guys wanted to be so that they could sleep with all those girls. Uh, <laughs> that's pretty accurate, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, I mean and, that, and that still carries on. And so, um, and look, even, even then, look, they get tagged as the band of the 90s uh, Robert Christgau, Robert Christgau, Robert Christgau christened them as the band of the 90s. Um, and I think some other indie publications have propped them up. And again, I guess, I mean, it's an argument of convenience. The first record's 1991, the last record's 1999. So, you know, they covered the spectrum. Um, and but look, you know, by 1999, they're done. I mean, Terror Twilight has got a couple of decent songs on it, but it's... It's, it's my least favorite of their albums. Terror yeah. Twilight. Your I mean, by, by that point, they're all, all five guys are living in different cities. They've moved on. And right, I, right. I think they just wanted to get it over with. And it sounds like that. Um, the, the album that has, in terms of um, deification, in terms of uh, worship, in terms of the pavement profile that's aged... The best is Crooked Rain, Crooked Rain. I think that that's the one that that that, that has held up. Um, and and I, I look, I guess I get some of it. I mean, in some ways, uh, for a lot of kids our age that were rockheads, uh, if you were to make like a like a, a campy, remember the nineties, uh, documentary, uh, Malcolmus would be one of the first five names mentioned. I mean, I get it. In some ways, he's a product of his era. But there again is another one that. Um, uh, had a lot to say, could say it well, but was kind of caught up in his own bullshit and was kind of like, I always got this, hey, look at me uh, uh, vibe from them. I mean, even, uh, and, and granted, you know, you had, what, what's his name? Bob Nastanovich, who yeah. did the dancing uh, shtick. Yeah, uh, he, he, yeah he, was, he was like the non-musician of the band. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and so, so, so there was a lot of shtick going on uh, uh, there. And, and again, like I said, you know, they've, they've got some, some monumentally great, uh, uh, 
monuments to well, monumentally great monuments. Okay, yeah, uh, quote me on that one. But uh, just you know, conduit for sale, uh, summer babe. Uh, you know, some of the stuff is just really strong. But you know, on balance, I just it was just so annoying. Maybe if I was female, it would be different. And so, again, you know, I, I just feel like I'm, I'm, I'm bagging on mythos more than music here yeah. um, uh, for a lot of these bands. But in Pavement's case, again, like I said, you know, uh, one brilliant record, two very good records and two mediocre records. Um, and then they've been riding, riding that wave uh, ever since. So I, I don't get it. So briefly, Arturo, tell me how wrong I am. Well, no, very briefly, um, I'm good. all I'm going to say is that uh, one of the first things you said about Pavement is, you know, um, the, 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 the impact they made and how it lingers. My defensive Pavement is going to come down to this basic thing. I'm going to give you a list of bands and artists from the 1990s up until now who I call descendants of Pavement. You know, artists and bands who have been, and you know, you know all of these, or not most of these, and our listeners probably know at least some of them. These are all bands, artists who have been deeply, deeply, deeply influenced and are indebted to pavement and their sound. And when I'm talking about the sound of pavement, I'm talking about the loose ramshackle slacker sound, the laconic vocals, the witty put down lyrics. You know, the, 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 the labyrinth-like song structures that are very unconventional. You know, bands that, that delved into that era. that Sorry, that area, I should say. Um, Pavement were the band that made it okay to do that. Uh, no other band before, there were other bands before Pavement doing it. But no one, in my opinion, did it as well as Pavement. As well to the point that it influenced a shitload of other bands. You know, oh, yeah, that, that, that I'll give it to him. The good, the, the good music done badly thing has really been an aesthetic ever since. Here, here, here's the list in alphabetical order Descendants of Pavement, <laughs> Courtney Barnett, Courtney Barnett, The Beta Band, uh, Late Period Blur, you know, from self titled album onward, um, the uh, post Britpop Blur, Early Period Built to Spill. Before Doug Marsh discovered prog rock and realized he could do prog rock better than every other prog rock band. <laughs> um, a band that you and I both adore from, uh, from the fall of 1998, Creeper Lagoon. Okay, very pavement influenced. Oh, yeah. Uh, I don't think they exist anymore, but I, I, we, we, we both really love that debut album of theirs. No, no, they've been working for a long time. Yeah, they've been yeah. working for a long time. Yeah. Deer Hunter, Mac DeMarco. Canadian singer-songwriter. Basically, it's pavement with a twinge of Steely Dan. That's basically what Mac DeMarco is. Flatworms, band from L.A. they probably my favorite American rock and roll band at the moment. The Goonstacks, another one of those great Australian bands. It's basically pavement meets the go-betweens. Another, another British band called Hooten Tennis Club. Very Probably the most outright blatant pavement wannabes. Kiwi Jr., another Canadian band. They just put out an album this year that's very, very good. They're basically pavement meets the cars. <laughs> next one. Stop, make it stop, make it stop. <laughs> okay, next. Early period Modest Mouse. You know, 90s Modest Mouse. Very yeah. much indebted to pavement and the big yeah no, yeah, no question. That's a good call. Parquet Courts. Is basically pavement goes in a time machine and meets 1970s CBGB's punk rock. 
That's very good, actually. And, and I, I actually do like the parquet courts. Yeah. Speedy Ortiz, another pavement disciple in a lot of ways. Kurt Vile. I hear a lot of pavement in Kurt Vile. Like I've always uh, said, you and I both love Kurt Vile. To me, Kurt yeah, Vile. That's, that's interesting. I'll have, I'll have to go back and uh, re-listen. Yeah. Kurt, Kurt, especially the laconic, the witty put-down lyrics, kind of a ramshackle sound, really windy melodies, twisty song structures. He's basically Kurt Vile. We'll talk about him in future episodes, and we're going to pump him up because we're both big fans of his. Um, basically, it's you know Lou Reed and Tom Petty uh, give birth to a bastard child called you know Pavement and smokes pot with the meat puppets. That's basically how I. Yeah, yeah, that's that's actually not a bad descriptor. I mean, I mean, Petty's probably his his heaviest influence, but uh, but yeah. But anyway, go ahead. Then, so you're on V. So uh, that's it. I'm done. I'm done. That's it. That's, that's a, lot, a lot of band right there. Yeah, that. Yeah, and and he's right. And again, you know, I maybe there's another way to put it, but good music done badly is 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 an aesthetic that was pretty much invented by Pavement in. Uh, in uh, indie rock. And again, it worked. Uh, I'll say Bright in the Corners is a brilliant record. I still listen to it several times a year, all that. But but again, I just, you know, I, as you could tell, all five of my groups, uh, or at least four of them, are, you know, have front men or uh, these, these types that uh, have this sort of cult-like uh, adoration that just kind of sickens me. So... And that ought to tell you about this member of the curmudgeonly duo. Uh, and, yes, and for sure. Now, we're gonna, what we're going to do now, folks, is we're going to end this with our album recommendations from the vault. We did this last episode. Uh, starting with this episode onward, we're going to leave this to the end. It'll be the last part of the episode. And albums, album recommendations from the vault means usually obscure older records. We begin the episode with modern contemporary albums that we that we, uh, good contemporary albums, modern records that we that we, uh, that we recommend, and we're going to end them with older records. This could be anything from the fifties, sixties, seventies, eighties, nineties, nineties, whatever. Okay, um, I've got mine. Uh, Chris has his. I will start with mine. My album recommendation from the vault, and it doesn't have to be obscure. It could be an older album from a well-known band and artist as well that not many people know about. It could be that as well. So we, we have we have a pretty uh, a diverse definition of a vault here. Yeah, well, a, a vault is just that where you really got to dive in and dig, and and so you know stuff that you might not think about, but there's been it's kind of like your attic. You know, you, once in a while you got to go and clean out your attic. That's what we're doing. So yeah. uh, take it away, Mister Andrade. Okay, my album vault. Chris, have you heard? Do you know the band Fugazi? Uh, I certainly do know Fugazi. Okay, as you know, Fugazi is led was they don't exist anymore. They were led, you know, they're post hardcore, super indie, alternative rock legends from the '90s, led by the two figureheads, um, Ian Mackay, the hardcore legend from um, Minor Threat, who formed Discord Records and pretty much created a cottage industry for anti-establishment rock and roll. And it's actually a very normal, nice guy. Uh, yeah, we met him once. Yes, um, Ian Mackay and the other the other frontman of Fugazi. They're, they they were kind of kind of like a clash. They had two frontman guitar player vocalists. Ian Mackay was one. He's the one who's most well known. And the other guy is Guy Picciotto, or Guy Picciotto. If I want to go by the Italian pronunciation, right? I'll go by Picciotto. And uh, Guy Picciotto before he joined Fugazi. Yeah. 
In the mid-1980s, he was in a band called Rites of Spring. Now, Rites of Spring only had one album. They released it in 1985. They were from the D.C. area, same as Ian MacKay. That album was released on Discord Records, Ian MacKay's label. Uh, that band put out one album. They broke up soon after. A couple of years later, Picciotto joined Fugazi. Okay, now why am I mentioning Rites of Spring? You and I, Chris, have many times um, taken a shit on the emo subgenre of rock <laughs> and emo in general. Yeah, <laughs> emo, emo basically means emotional rock. It just means um, it's post-hardcore, uh, punk rock-driven kind of rock that's really histrionic with its vocals and its lyrical content, very much first person, very passionate and, and, and just crazy about getting the message of cross and just, ah, that kind of stuff. And usually, for me, it's pretty off-putting. There's a lot of crap emo out there. I think most emo bands are garbage. Rites of, Rites of, Spring, Rites of Spring was the very, very first emo album. It was the first emo rock album, and it's awesome. It's very, very different from Dashboard Confessional. It's very different from what's that other emo, emo, emo light group that I hate? Ah, Death Cab for Cutie, another one. Yeah, another one that I can't stand. Very different from all those crappy emo groups. Rites of Spring, and if you think about it, chronologically, they're in the mid '80s. Minor Threat were early '80s. Fugazi started in the late '80s. Rites of Spring musically sound exactly what they are in the timeline. They have one foot in early 80s minor threat style hardcore punk and another foot in what would become Fugazi. And Fugazi was a very rich band. They had a lot of, they had a lot of influences, um, although their, their complex uh, rhythms, their really interesting guitar riffs, their gnarled song structures – they were very innovative, and maybe, in my opinion, Fugazi were one of the best bands of the 90s. Rites of Spring have one leg in both of those camps. They're right after hardcore, and they're right before Fugazi. And vocally and lyrically, very, very emo, but they were the first ones to do it. And they did it in a way that's very affecting, um, that's really impactful, actually. Uh, you, you read stories. Uh, Michael Azarod mentions them in, a, in his his, uh, his great book from uh, about the about the uh, the underground all, uh, rock and roll scene in the 1980s. Um, this uh, band could be your life. Your life, exactly. He mentions Rite of Spring, how you know, basically there were young fans crying at their shows because just of the, the emotional rapture that this band brought apart. But they weren't wussy, you know. They, like I said they, they had they, they were one half minor threat and the other half of what would eventually become Fugazi. There's a reason why Ian Mackay loved this band so much and put their music out on Discord and then picked up Guy Picciotto and brought him into Fugazi. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, he stole their front man, yeah. <laughs> he stole their front man. Okay. And, um, so Rites of Spring, the first emo punk rock album, the best emo punk rock album, really influential, really important, really good, much, much better. It's so It's so good it should not be called emo. And last point, it's one of Kurt Cobain's 50 all-time favorite records. So if Kurt Cobain says it's great, it's great. Yeah, uh, yeah, def definitely check it out. And like I said, that whole Discord uh, scene is just fascinating. And it's 
the, it was the epitome of uh, 1980s and early 90s DIY uh, yeah. rock. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, there's what uh, you know, there's the beat happening thing, which is DIY. But that's 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 it done insufferably. In DC, they were doing it great. So, yeah. well, so the, those band, those bands actually rocked. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the bands actually did rock. And so, the, Olymp- um, the Olympia Washington scene were a bunch of like, yeah, I get not being able to play your instruments, trying to play your instruments, but don't make it kiddie and childlike. The childlike thing really bothered me. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. If you're going to do it, at least do it straight, you know? So, okay, so now let's go into My Vault. And uh, this is an album that you have are more likely – not very likely, but more likely to have heard of. Now, you've definitely heard of the artist, uh, The Grateful Dead. Of course. Yep, and uh, this is one of those bands that uh, is kind of like the reverse uh, thing for me from the Sacred Cows, where I didn't get them when I was a kid, but boy, do I get them now. And yeah. uh, sensational, uh, uh, wonderful, inventive band. So they started out early. You know, they were a skiffle band originally, and they were still trying to kind of find their way and kind of their voice and very experimental and they'd never done anything with the studio. And then of course, you know, they come out of the whole Ken Casey thing in the, in the uh, late sixties in San Francisco. And so of course they were on way too many drugs. And so. <laughs> Especially for this album you're going to mention. <laughs> yes, exactly. And so they get their chance to do major label studio or, or, you know, to, so they, they actually had a budget. And out of that comes Anthem of the Sun. And Anthem of the Sun is, is a really fascinating record to me. And the reason I, rec- I, I recommend it, it, I'm not recommending it as a popular music album in the orthodox sense. Um, will you find good songs on this record? Uh, Probably not. I mean, unless uh, Alligator is, is, is your speed. I mean, it's corny. It, unless you like that kind of thing. Uh, you're not going to find good songs in Anthem of the Suns. But if you look at it as uh, a, an album of bits and pieces, um, you know, right. I, I almost look at it as, you know, let's say that you take a, um, a church, a church uh, stained glass window and you smash it up. And, you know, so you'll have bigger, shinier pieces. You'll have little, you know, pieces that don't really belong and all of that. So you have to kind of, it's like wading through a pile of broken stained glass is, 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 is a visual way of, of thinking about this record. Uh, wonderful little bits, like a chime here. Uh, that was sort of the debut of the double drum thing that they were sort of known for with Mickey Hart and uh, Bill Kreutzmann. Uh, working together. So there's a couple of little um, uh, double drum solos or these sort of these drum kicks. And what you'll get is you'll get periods where there's just like really bad little melodies or the things that pass for songs that then segue into these really great sustained three minute jams. And, and so like even alligator, you know, the first half of it is very corny. It's just sort of, it's almost like a, like a skiffle, um, not a sea shanty, but it's almost kind of like one of these sort of, uh, almost like a kind of kind of a shuffling, dopey, uh, amped up uh, coffee house type of song. Uh, but then it it 
the second half of it just turns into this amazing jam thing with Jerry Garcia, where the band is riding Garcia rather than the other way around. So, and then it all ends, uh, the the album ends with this. um, And I know half of it was, it was a stitched together record, half of it's studio and half of it is live recording. And they kind of mixed and melded it. it, Uh, Not just that each, each track is stitched together from, parts of studio sessions and different parts of live recordings in yeah. one song. Oh yeah. I mean, like I said, as an orth- as an orthodox album, it's a fucking mess, but it's, it's a fascinating listen. And it ends with this really extraordinary, just kind of spooky uh, five minute droning up and down uh, solo with Garcia really doing some really inventive stuff um, that I, I think at that point was pretty groundbreaking. Uh, so it's Good worth God. a listen. If anything, if anything, Jerry Garcia, I don't think this sound weird. If anything, I think he's an underrated guitar player. Because when people think oh, of Jerry Garcia, when people think of Jerry Garcia, they think, oh, the, the stoned hippie guy and the and, and the fat old stone Santa Claus looking hippie guy. No, that dude was a badass guitar player. Yeah, no, he, yeah, he was a badass guitar player. I mean, his tunings, his tone, uh, his playing style, uh, and all of that, and just. Uh, as a musician and as a songwriter, I mean, the guy, the guy was a brilliant, brilliant uh, mind, Uh, twisted mind, but a brilliant mind. Uh, And again, and I think it's on display and it's just, again, it's, you you look at the bits and pieces, it's a really adventurous listen. Uh, It's definitely worth uh, your investigation. And for me, uh, even though, yes, uh, you know, uh, working man's dead and uh, blues for Allah, and Blues for Iowa is my personal favorite dead record. Um, the best really? of the records. Huh. Yeah, it's that's my personal favorite dead record. Um, lots of really great stuff going on there. And and there is great song work on there. Uh, but, you know, their best album, objectively, is probably American Beauty. But if you get into that stuff. My favorite. Yeah, that's my to favorite. Me, to me, if you really want to understand the dead, you got to listen to stuff like Anthem of the Sun and just sort of, you know, that, that kind of uh, adventuresomeness and uh, I will say this, though, as we said before, if you watch the documentary Long Strange Trip, you'll understand. Awesome. Just how, awesome yes, documentary. Awesome documentary. You'll understand just how influenced that album uh, was by drugs. Uh, the, the single biggest laugh in that um, in that movie is uh, what's his name? Bob Smith, the uh, the uh, the uh, the owner of uh, the owner of their label was saying that uh, 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 Bob Weir calls him up one day, you know, tripping his uh, tripping his sack off. Uh, saying that they ought to go down to the um, to the uh, to the shore of the beach nearby, so that they can that they can record the the three shades of wind or whatever it was. It was like we have to record the light and the wind from the beach, and we have to catch these these satellites, and we we have to do this. And so that got to just tell you how whacked out the guys were uh, during the time. <laughs> but, but but again, they came up with this, and and look. I, Anthem of the Sun, it actually made, not this time, but an earlier version of uh, uh, Rolling Stones. Rolling Stone 500. 500. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, not not this this last iteration, but it was there. And so it does have a reverence and it does have a fan base, but it's, it's worth your attention and totally worth the recommendation. And because this album was so wacky and went so far to the stratosphere, is what set the stage for their back to the roots uh, phase starting with 1969's Alexo Moxoa. Yeah, Alexo Moxoa is a good record. And this is when Robert Hunter comes into the fold as Garcia's chief lyricist. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And Axo, you know, actually, you know, Axo Maxoa, it's it's kind of like it's their that's kind of the psychedelic uh, wise guy album with real songs and with real lyrics right. and, and, and done tightly. It's actually a really good record, but it's kind of the same comes out of the same scene. And then it was after that record that I think they all decided that, yeah, we've been like too high for too long. So we got to go out to the woods. Uh, so, <laughs> yep. And that, that's kind of where it happens. So anyway, that's my shtick. So uh, there you go. Rights of spring and Anthem of the sun. Uh, I check- agree with yeah, check them out on Spotify. You can probably find them all on YouTube. Um, maybe dig in your own crates and you haven't heard them for a while. Go ahead. Or go, or go download da- download them illegally from the torrents. You'll find them there. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, or 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 be a pirate. Uh, you know, <laughs> I think you you know the labels have made it so that you deserve that right. So uh, so that that's really about it, Arturo. Uh, we so are done. So, so how do you how do you feel through the first uh, run through the meadows with the cows? I feel good. Um, I think even though we did pretty, this is a pretty long episode. I think it's fine as is. I don't think we should change much. I think I like it, and uh, the longer we go, I don't care. I, I yeah. think we hit, we hit every point we wanted to hit. Absolutely, and and yeah, that's the thing. We are a niche. Uh, or in a niche, or we're establishing a niche. I call us, uh, we are a shining uh, uh, player in the rock nerd uh, space, and, and, we, and we do it very well. And so uh, we want you to embrace uh, our worldview between the two of us. Uh, this is kind of like uh, uh, eating wacky sauce for breakfast. Um, <laughs> and I'm telling you, it's an adventuresome listen, and there's a lot of, a lot of stuff there. Uh, like I said, I, I was so uh, so much a fan of the the Kate Bush rant that uh, we're going to make a, a mini episode of that uh, on, on its own, and so that's that. So we'll invite some British music journalists to come on the show and try to defend her. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely, and uh, that's something, by the way, folks, that we're building up to. We're a conversational podcast for now, but uh, we have some dream guests that we want to get on here, and who knows, maybe a friend of ours or, or two will show up here. Uh, well, yeah. What do you think? Uh, special guest Mike Eisenstein. <laughs> Him. Uh, well, he's he, he's a very well known uh, journalist in the science field, not in the music field. Right. Yes. No. I, I understand that, but he does have a lot to say. And then I have a friend of mine who's a DJ and a bar owner in Tucson named Mike Essie, who might come on here as well at some point too. So, uh, shout out to Mike. Uh, so anyway, um, we are done, and we will. Hopefully you'll tune in next time when we will continue our bovine trilogy. And this time, Chris and I are really going to get pissed off and we're going to agree in everything because all our, <laughs> all, we're going to each give five choices of old cows that need to be killed and put out to pasture. Yeah. Uh, uh, let, let, let me just give you the short title for that one. Fuck the who. Fuck the who. Yeah. Oh, and you too. And the stones. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and 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 a lot of uh, other uh, a lot of other well known uh, uh, old folks uh, retirement home people that really need to go the fuck away. By the way, bands that we actually really love, like and yeah. like a lot, especially their earlier stuff. But yeah, that's the not- whole that's the whole point. You know, they yeah. they they need to be put out the pasture or take taken out back and shot. So. <laughs> Anyway, on, on, on that note, uh, you can always catch us at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. Uh, hit us up on Twitter at, uh, at curmudgeonpod. 
definitely check us out. We're on Medium as well, uh, which is which is exciting. And so we post full episodes to Anchor and Medium, and we get full distribution. So you'll find us where you find all the other podcasts: um, you know, Apple, Spotify, Google, etc. Uh, and, uh, just d- definitely check us on our Patreon. If you, if you want our official downloadable show notes, that's where you'll find them. Uh, put $5 in our tip jar and we'll give you a shout out on the air and you'll be part of this wonderful, uh, music podcast, uh, community helping to, to keep all of the boats, uh, uh, floating. The curmudgeon rock report will keep on rocking if you do. Catch us where you catch all the podcasts. We know you love rock and roll as much as we do. Support us with donations at patreon.com slash curmudgeonrock. Find show notes and more on our Medium site. Join us next time as rock nerds smack you with knowledge. Stay rude, stay crude, stay sophisticated. Thank you for listening.